Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. All right, Matthew, it is time for us to finally do something we have been talking about for at least a year, probably two at this point. We're going to be diving into the book Dune. This is something very different for us, very new for us. We're covering a book. And we're going to yeah. cover the book the way we've covered everything in the past. We're going to just make our way through it. And good news, we're not going to spoil any of the plot points. We may let lore slip here and there, but nothing that will ruin the book going forward. So this will be great for you if you're a first-timer. This will be great for you if you've read it before. And we're going to be using lines, passages, descriptions as a springboard into conversation about these chapters. And you're going to talk a little bit to the good people here in just a minute, Matt, about what we're going to do logistically in terms of covering this book from uh, what we're going to call chapters, et cetera. Why don't you line that up for the good people? Yeah, well, we're going to be breaking it down. Like for this, uh, our episode here, we're going to be covering the first five chapters, which are not labeled as chapters in the book, but they all, we're basically marking a chapter by uh, every section that begins with a journal entry, usually usually from the Princess Irulan or some future entry that kind of heads the chapter. So like I said, we'll be going through the first five, which is uh, in our copy of the book. And if you really want to follow along to the exact page, we are using the newly issued uh, paperback copy of Dune from Penguin, the one that's got, uh, you know, the the title Dune written vertically on the cover, some really cool orange sand dunes on it. So Matt, you talked about maybe reading these introduction journal entries as a, as sort of a launching point into that. And then we'll just talk about that chapter and... Once we feel we've covered enough about that chapter, we'll move on to the next one and so on and so forth. Beautiful. All right, let's start it out. A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. To begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, then take care that you first place him in his time. Born in the 57th year of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and take the most special care that you locate Muad'Dib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born on Caladan and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as Dune, is forever his place. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Obviously the Muad'Dib's biggest fan. She writes about him a lot. <laughs> She's a huge fan. She fangirls fan. hard over old Muad'Dib. <laughs> Lots of fan fiction about him. <laughs> I, I can only wonder what, in, in fact, is uh, entailed in those pages. But <laughs> right from jump, Matt, we learn about a beginning is a time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. Balance is going to be important. The Muad'Dib is going to be important. The Muad'Dib, I think we can infer, is connected to <laughs> our titular, or not our titular, but our character in question. As we learn about the boy Paul in this chapter, is in fact fifteen years old. Is is years old? Is in fact coming from Caladan? Is in fact heading to the planet known as Arrakis, otherwise known as Dune. I like that. I like that the book's saying right out front, we're going to have your main character. You're going to be introduced to the main character. We're going to slap a lot of mystery and terms you don't know about. Benny Gesserit, you don't know. Muad'Dib, you don't know. Shaddam, you don't know. Caladan, you don't know. That's it. And we're going to yeah. go right into what's happening here by introducing you to this character. 
And what's interesting about this is the way people perceive this character and then his POV on how he is in fact perceived and what he perceives about the people who are, who have opinions about him, right? To sort of start developing this character known as Paul. And I even like, I mean, there's, there's a kind of small mystery set up even in that, that opening entry where it's essentially already referring to Paul. We don't quite know that yet, but it's talking about him as this future being the Muad'Dib and really implying a lot of power or, or special purpose there, but we don't understand what that is yet. But what I love about that is that it's already essentially letting you know that the future's already known. Like, the, like there is some huge, massive future ahead of where our characters already are, and they're just sort of like pawns playing their part in it, which I find really interesting. And we get that impression through these first few chapters. I won't skip ahead, but even in this very first chapter, things are in motion, Matthew. Things are happening already. And right on the right in one of these first couple of pages here, we know that this woman also described as an old woman, also described as a witch shadow, a crone who uh, is meeting the boy, uh, Paul, who's 15 for the first time, which I have a, a thought about, but just her saying, hmm, isn't he sly the way he pretends to be asleep while she looks in on him? And then she thinks, listens to them, yeah. exactly. And she says, you know what? You're going to need all your faculties tomorrow for you're going to meet my Gom Jabbar. So Mother Mohayim, Reverend Mohayim, this Benny Gesserit witch, she already knows Paul's future because she's going to be the facilitator of said future by giving him this test right in this first chapter, Matt which is very neat. It goes right to what you were saying at the beginning. Things have been laid out. Some of future things are known to certain parties. And we're going to talk a lot about that as we go through this book. Hell yeah. Well, where should we move to next? Well, here's what I want to talk about. I just want to discuss how interesting it is that the three characters most notably known in this chapter uh, directly with with reference to one Thufir Hawat, his father's master of assassins, which we'll get to. But, but just... Right in the beginning of this, we're setting this up. Oh, interesting. It's a house. There's sort of a royal thing. Jessica's this ducal concubine. She's married to Duke Leto. There's this reverend witch that she has very complicated feelings about, which we're going to talk about. And now she's examining the boy, Paul. Uh, and she's going to test the boy, Paul. And it's neat that he's already 15. And based on everything we know about Mohaim at this point, which is she seems powerful, especially after this chapter, she she has power with words, the voice. There's this great uh, moment in this chapter where she where her words are described as whipping out at him, and then he's yes. just compelled to move. Right, that's a great descriptor. Her words whipped out at him like whoop, bap, and then he's just whoa! I have to move. I, I I'm compelled to move. It's interesting that according to Paul, or or even what the what the text is telling us is she's never seen him. He's already fifteen. You would think if if you you would think based on what we know from the mystery setup that she may have seen him sooner and maybe she has and we're just not privy to that information yet. Right, right. Or you almost even get the sense that they almost like people like uh, uh, Mohayim and like elder Benny Jesuits, like they don't really care about you until you've already proven at least enough life to be like worth looking at. <laughs> like that is now such that a you're good fifteen. Point. Like, now that you're 15, we can take a look at you and see, you know, what you're worth, what you can be. Because before that, they're like, eh, could die. Don't matter. Yeah, it's a dangerous world, right? That's that's another thing these chapters are going to tell us right away, is they're going to remind us that this is not, this this place is not friendly. 
This, these, there's masters of assassins. There's don't sit with your back to the wall. There's uh, to a door. There's all this stuff we're going to learn about these people as we go through. Um, but before we get to probably the most important part of this chapter, Matt, is the test. And okay. what it means in the central theme of the book is almost established here, which is this dueling consciousness. And something Frank Herbert talked a lot about in this interview I was listening to, which was really neat because it's from the 60s. It's like listening to a podcast. It's like a capsule in time where he was talking about the ethical versus the moral. Versus the moral. In, 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 in having the code versus doing what's necessary. And I thought it was very interesting that yeah. it almost I, plays I like out. I mean, we already kind of see this battling of philosophy pretty early on when he, when he starts to actually speak to the Reverend Mother. Absolutely. And that's what she's doing, right? She's testing him uh, for a very specific purpose of which we'll get into in a minute. But I like this. I like that the first thing we do is before we even get to the test in this chapter, we get into... Paul wondering, Gamjabar, Kwiza Chadarak, your reverence. What are these words? And how, how, how can this crone, this witch woman, as she described, how can she even dare talk to a duke's concubine with such flippancy? Like this, this is almost the first moment of Paul's life where he's learning something about the different way the world is going to operate. How dare, like he, we understand that Paul is royalty. We understand that his mother is considered a very respected and royal position. Even though the word concubine in some cultures has a negative connotation, it doesn't appear to be, at least with the people of Caledon, because no. he is shocked that she would refer to Jessica in such a flippant way. Right? Right, right. I love that moment where he's like, you just miss her like she's some serving wench? Like, what are you doing? Like, he's so shocked at exactly. the way he treats, or that she treats his mother. And she replies, she was my serving wench. I mean, she, I, Paul expresses a lot of interesting things here with his relationship to, with, to, to Mohayim because he's curious about her. I find it very fascinating that, I don't know about you, but the way this is set up, I feel like the novel or Frank Herbert wants us to be a little bit concerned or fearful of this witch, right? Oh, totally. And I mean, one of the only other things we know uh, or have confirmed for us at this point is that Paul's mother, the Lady Jessica, was a, or well, still is, a Bene Gesserit herself. And we don't know much about what that is other than it is a school uh, mm -hmm. for women that is pretty mysterious and pretty powerful. But we also learn pretty quickly that uh, Paul has been trained in some of the ways of Very the Bene Gesserit. And, and what he, is, he describes as in the minutia of observation. Like that's what the Bene Gesserit specialize in they 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 can see every detail of somebody the way they hold themselves the way they move they can figure out if somebody's uh, hiding something or has some tension that they're not you know you know uh, making known absolutely yep and that's that's where he gets into even doing this moment where he has to steel himself against what he's thinking or feeling um, it comes shortly after a dream. But there's a section in this first chapter that may confuse a first-time reader, and I want to talk a little bit about it. But it's when he's recalling, uh, Paul is recalling Arrakis and Dune, Desert Planet. He's thinking about it. He knows this is where he's going. So not only is he being visited by this crone, this witch, Reverend Mother Mohayim, and that his mother Jessica is present, we're also learning that he's about to leave Caladan and go to Arrakis, also known as Dune. So he's preparing to leave with his whole family. This isn't a vacation. This is a relocation. And one of the important things about this is Paul discussing Thufir Hawat, which is his father's, quote, master of assassins. 
And one of the things that we learn is that the Harkonnens, the mortal enemies of House Atreides, so just to set that up, because this, this paragraph is a little bit much, a little bit much if you don't know what's going on, but Paul <laughs> is part of House Atreides, their mortal enemy is House Harkonnen. We learn that the Harkonnens had been on Arrakis for 80 years, so that, that the arch enemy of Paul's home is leaving Arrakis so they can go, Okay. And what's interesting about this is they have something called uh, a quasi-thief under Chom Company. We don't know what Chom means at this point, but Chom Company contract to mine the geriatric spice melange. We're going to learn a lot about the spice going into the future. But now the Harkonnens were leaving to be replaced by House Atreides in Thief Complete, an apparent victory for Duke Leto, which is Paul's dad. Now, all of that stuff is a bit confusing, right? Uh, it, what does all that mean? What is Chome Company? How does this all work? Um, what, wait, it's a deadly place. We know that Arrakis is a deadly place. It's a desert planet. That's, that's terrifying, right? And we know that Leto, Paul's dad, is popular. This is another important plot point introduced at this stage of the game because as the Master of Assassins once told Paul, a popular man arouses the jealousy of the powerful. And we already know, it's kind of revealed to us in a later chapter, that their house, House Atreides, is not one of the biggest, richest houses. They're a little bit smaller. That's right. But but what, where they make up for that is in Duke Leto's popularity. Like, we start to see a little bit of the power dynamics and how these play out because of, you know, they're not the biggest house that can throw the most weight around, but they command more respect. Indeed, they do. And it, it, should I give, should I should I offer a quick, uh, a quick, understanding of Chome and, and how said power and money works or should I save it? It's, it'd be pretty short. What do you think? No, I think we should talk about it because I mean, to be honest, on my first read through Chome, the Chome company was probably the thing I got hung up on the most. I mean, it didn't, you know, ruin the book for me, but I remember being, it was kind of a stumbling block of like, well, what is Chome? What is their position in all of this? All right, cool. So there was, let me see. So Chome, uh, oh no. I grabbed this from Reddit and I apologize that I'm not quoting the guy who took it. I thought I wrote his name down. I'll go back and, and I'll update this in a future app, but I was looking for a very succinct explanation of Chome because if not, I'll just, I'll just ruminate on it for hours and it won't be interesting to anybody. So there's a great comparison of Chome to Amazon. Ooh, it's, okay. it's, a, it's a great comparison. So. The Amazon comparison is best. Amazon doesn't sell a product. It sells the facilitation of product. If Amazon was 100% owned by the sellers and government was based on how many shares you had in Amazon, it would be Chome. Interesting. That does make sense. It yeah. does, right? So, so the employees are paid out of operating costs and local warehouses would be controlled by the minor houses, right? Right. And then your major shareholders would be people who own the military or things of this nature. And then, yeah, yeah, because he owns shares. He he sits at the head of Chome, right? Right. Because he owns something like 59% of the shares. That's right. To continue the analogy, the guild, which we're going to learn about soon, is the postal service that owns the highways, trains, airlines, buses, right? Because because they because they are one and two. She's going to talk about that. I think before we move past these chapters. But um, I added to the analogy by saying the spice is basically gasoline. Then, if we're going to continue this analogy, and it can only be refined on Arrakis, exactly. And yeah, it can only be found and refined there. Right. 
uh, or maybe a more convoluted comparison would be that Arrakis provides all the maps, GPS, and street signs, right? Because we're going to come to learn that travel, space travel, there's a monopoly on it. And, and that monopoly is dependent on the spice because the spice is what gives the navigators their ability to get through space. Is right. that it? At faster than light travel. That's like They right. wouldn't be able to do it without the assistance of the spice. Right. And without completely confusing people, I think that's a, an apt place to stop on the chome analogy. But that's basically what it is. Pretty, right. no, pretty neat. That's good. So as you already mentioned, getting back to Paul, there's this thing with him. The He goes on to say, animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment nor into the idea that its victims may become extinct. The animal destroys and does not produce. Animal pleasures remain close to sensation levels and avoid the perceptual. The human requires a background grid through which to see his universe. Focused consciousness by choice. This forms your grid. Bodily integrity follows nerve blood flow according to the deepest awareness of cell needs. All things cells beings are impermanent. They strive for flow permanence within. Over and over within Paul's floating awareness, the lesson rolled. Again, we're getting back into this idea of the animal mind versus the human mind. And why is this so important, Matt? Well, because it's time for Paul to face Reverend Mother. Indeed. The sifting. The sifting of animal from human. Absolutely. Yep. We also learn that we, we get a little POV on Mohayim where she's a little bit uh, perturbed with Jessica, isn't she? Because if only Jessica had had a damned girl child as she was supposed to. Which, dude, I, I love that revelation because we don't quite, in one sense, we don't understand it because it's like, well, why does that matter? Why did they need a girl? Why is that so important? But also, it really starts to beg the question, they can control what <laughs> gender their child is going to be? Like, that's Absolutely. the level of almost like atomic control they have over uh, their own matter. <laughs> like That's, that's right. fascinating. Uh, and, and I will give a teaser to the book, House Atreides, but in House Atreides, we come to learn how a character we, we, we meet in this section, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, came to be so heavy and, and weak of leg. We learn a lot about that and how it has to do with some Benny Gesserit power. It's, yeah. it's interesting. It's super interesting. I don't want to spoil it in case people are going to read that book, but it, it ties right back into this picking. You can pick the, you know, what kind of child you're going to have. So but. Cool. Should All we right. talk about the uh, the actual meeting when Paul Paul is invited in by the Reverend Mother, and pretty quickly his mother, Lady Jessica, is dismissed by the Reverend Mother because she wants to be alone with Paul. Indeed, and one of the interesting things about this is Paul having the wherewithal to, to consider what does she fear. <laughs> I think it speaks to the boy's courage early on, right? That he he is ready to face the situation and try to understand it. That's right. If I was 15, based on all of the description I've gotten through these first 10 pages here, man, I would be very concerned with this woman. <laughs> I don't know don't if I'd be leave wondering. Me alone with her. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would be concerned for my safety. I don't know if I'd be considering what she feared, which shows you something special about him. Right, right. He's, he confronts things. And he's also, he's a bit petulant with her, isn't he? Oh, he definitely is. You can tell he is very annoyed by the way he, that, the way she treats his mother. Like that really sticks in him. Does one dismiss the lady Jessica as though she were a serving witch, right? To, to the balls on this kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we get the great, the command whipped out at him. And suddenly he's looking into these 
dark eyes, uh, you know, bird-like eyes, I believe they were described as, or they were often referred to her with a predatory look. Uh, again, the language, the prose used to describe Mohayim is excellent because it's really almost painting her as an adversary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, you are afraid of this woman at the beginning of the book. You're, you're like, what is she here for? And I love the way we introduce the next mystery. Like, there's so much mystery in these opening pages because she says, see this, she asked. Mm. From the folds of her gown, she lifted a green metal cube about 15 centimeters on a side. She turned it, and Paul saw that one side was open, black and oddly frightening. No <laughs> light penetrated that open blackness. And she commands... Put your right hand in the box. Indeed. I love this. Because we I, have no idea what this is. All that we know is that looking into its blackness is is intimidating. Absolutely. It's great. And of course, she threatens him with something called the Gamjabar, which possesses a metacyanide, a sort of poison on a pin that she holds at his neck, suggesting if you pull your hand from the box, you will feel death as swift as the headsman's axe. I love it. She's like, I'll kill you if you take your hand out of the box. Now... We have, we're now we're like, okay, this is, this is completely and utterly dangerous. She tells him, listen, this, this poison only kills animals, right? She, she's, she keeps using this cute language to say things like this, you know, withdraw it and die, right? And right. That's the whole of the test, the entire test. She says, there's one rule, remove your hand and die. And I love when he asks, well, what is in the box? Pain. That's her only answer, right? Pain. Oh, it's so good. I, I also love Matt. I love the way he's considering like, well, I'll just shout for the cards. This is ludicrous. And <laughs> whenever Mohaim says they will not get past your mother, you go, holy shit, mom's in on it. Right. It's right. such like a this- great revelation for him. Like, wait, oh, what's happening? You're not just toying with me. Mom's not going to burst in and rescue me. No, she's going to keep peek. If you call guards, Jessica will turn them away. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, we're, we're learning that this is a Bene Gesserit rite, that they are mm. keeping from everyone else. This is something for Bene Gesserits only. Mm-hmm. Um, and as this is happening, we still start to learn more about Paul's knowledge of the Bene Gesserit. He already understands some of their ways. Like, I, I think we should go ahead and read the Litany Against Fear. By all means. That was, that was taught to him by his mother. You know, as he's, you know, looking at the box and he has the Gamjabar already at his throat and he is afraid. He thinks in his own head of the litany against fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Which immediately calms him to the point where he says, get on with it, old woman. Yeah, made them balls swell up a little uh, bit. Oh, man, this kid, huh? He's got some chutzpah. <laughs> but yeah, I do like this. I like this this moment where he, he the litany against fear, it calms him. It's a great passage. I must not fear. Fear is a mind killer. I mean, that's nothing more true has ever been spoken, right? And For real. that's when uh, he it begins. She talks about it. She sort of, uh, after the whole pain comment, she goes in to say, listen, a human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. Why are you doing this, he asks, to determine if you're human. Be silent. This section is so good. This, that, how much have we seen already of, of deception? It's, the, the book starts with deception. Paul's pretending to be asleep. 
in that right. he may gain an advantage over his attackers, so to speak. Although it's his mother and a mysterious crone woman. <laughs> so much of Dune, so much is being set up right in the beginning, and we're going to see that when we meet the Harkonnens in a minute. So much of this is deception in how it is used to win. Right. There's right. a huge premise in this book, I think, and that's deception is the mother of of, of victory. It, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's crazy to think about, but she's talking about, she says, part of her whole test, part of the premise of the test is a human would remain in a trap, thus deceiving the trapper, so then you could get an advantage by way of deception, she's saying. Deception is right. key. That, and also I think it's, it's this nurturing, this sense of overcoming your your bodily senses that can distract Absolutely. you and, and sway you and emotions that'll course through you and change your actions to tame all of that and think of the longer bigger picture yep i think that's, that's probably the more right i mean I, that that to me that we we're still learning about the Bene Gesserit, but that is a is kind of the key to understanding them that they have this long view of history and and actions to be taken in it Absolutely. And I think that's probably more the central point of the entire book, right? This idea of overcoming the instinct by way of intellect, so to speak. Right. And I mean, we see that immediately in the, as the test actually begins, once his hand is inside the box, and it's described as this heat, this burning sensation. It mounts slowly, heat upon heat upon heat. He felt the fingernails of his free hand biting the palm, mm. tried to flex the fingers of his burning hand, and he can't move them. I mean, it goes on to describe what he, he's imagining what his hand is like inside of the box because he can't see it. He imagines the flesh literally falling off of it, the hand awesome. charring black because that's how much it fucking hurts. Right. <laughs> you know, I want to get back to, about, back to like the, what you were just saying about the, about the pain and the thought process. The other thing too is awareness, right? The, the test teaches us about awareness and an awareness that would not be possessed by an animal. If you were to hold metacyanide in the form of a needle up to, say, any animal's head or, or neck or whatever, and then you started to burn their paw or hand or hoof, they would withdraw it because, right. they, because that's the immediate thing you should do to survive, But which, is, which, is, which makes sense. That's the animal instinct. But it shows a lack of awareness as to the greater threat, which is the ending of your life by way of poison. So it's almost like the test is suggesting animals don't have the overall awareness to know that there's something also literally pointed at your neck and that you should endure the pain in the, in this short term. Right. Right. That they forget, they forget the longer view during the immediate sensation of pain or they don't even conceive of it. Right. Right. They can't conceive. Like I don't, a dog doesn't know what a needle, well, probably if they go to the vet a lot, but you know what I'm saying? That's my point. It's interesting. And uh, well, good news. He handles it to where she says, cool, wahad. no woman, ever, no woman child ever withstood that much. I believe something like that. <laughs> and I love how she even says, I must have wanted you to fail. Like yeah. she, she purposely made it worse. Yep. And that's when she says, we Benny Jesserit, Sift people to find humans. Yes. Yeah, like she actually, uh, one of my favorite parts is when he finally has his hand removed and he, he's realizing that his hand is okay, that it was just pain, a nerve sensation. Uh, and he, he actually asks her, you did that to my mother once? <laughs> and her reply is, ever sift sand through a screen? Indeed. The, and then it's just the tangential slash of her question shocked his mind into a higher awareness. Sand through a screen. 
Like, I love that. How she doesn't answer his question. She gives him another question that makes him rethink the entire issue. Right. And of course, I love the idea that sand is used as we're on our way to Iraq as soon. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> but that's the Bene Gesserit way right here, is that they are trying to find humans who can resist their, their bodily impulses. Like, that's the real test. That's right. And that's when um, we learn about how he sort of feels about her. Perhaps you are the Kwisatz Haderach, she says. And when she orders Paul to sit down, he doesn't. So he's not thrilled with this woman, as you would imagine, since she just gave him immense pain through nerve induction, I believe is how it's described. And that's when she says, and this is an interesting part of this chapter, Jessica, have you ever stopped hating me? The woman asks Jessica, to which Jessica says, I both love and hate you. The hate... That's from the pains. I must never forget the love. That's to where the woman responds by saying just the basic fact, <laughs> right? And of course, we learn that Jessica's overwhelmed in love. But what I do like about this is we understand that there is some feelings here from Mohayim to Jessica and even to Paul a little bit. And there is some in return for Jessica obviously loves her son, Paul, but for Mother Mohayim as well, which is going to be very contradicted by the next chapter where we meet the Harkonnens, which is a good way to sort of balance quote, antagonist from protagonist as the book goes on. But Jessica's overwhelmed that, that her son lives and she's happy and she starts to wonder about, you know, Paul starts to wonder, you know, she told the truth. She's thinking, she's thinking, Paul's thinking about his mom in this, right? Wondering right. what this terrible purpose he now feels. He feels infected with terrible purpose. Ah, uh, see, now that is a recurring phrase uh, throughout the book and one of the things i love about it it's it's very ill-defined like we don't know what that means and paul doesn't know what it means he just kind of feels it but for me i i take it almost in like a meta sense of having a knowledge of some terrible purpose where you don't know what specifically it is but you know it's there you feel the weight of it all the time <laughs> that to me feels like a, almost like a character understanding that they're a character, that they, they are playing a part in something so much bigger and they're going to play an important part in it. They just don't know what it is yet. And it's just that, that weight of not being able to see the future, but knowing it's going to involve you. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about the idea of that is feeling that you're infected. Feeling is, is, the, is a very important word here, or felt. Paul felt that he had been infected with terrible purpose. What I love about that is that almost lends credence back to this idea of instinct, which you could argue is animalistic, which brings you back to the test in this never-ending paradox that this book presents, right? I have a feeling something isn't right up here, but I could never tell you intellectually why. That's very animalistic. Right, right. It's pretty neat. It's just a sense. It's a sense, exactly. A sense he doesn't quite have awareness of yet, even though he passed the test. To right, which exactly. she elaborates on, doesn't she, Mohayim? She says... We're testing humans to set you free. And that's when she talks about the bootlerian jihad. She talks about how once men turned their thinking over to machines and hoped that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's so good. It's, so, that's, it's relevant in 2020, in 2021, right? Right. Whenever you happen For to be real. listening to this, because we're at the end of the year. and anyway. But anyway, um, yeah, that's, um, thou shall not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. That's huge. Right, and that, and what she corrects Paul too. I like the the moment where he says, "Yeah, the, what the Balerian jihad means is thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human uh, or a man's mind." And the Mohayim corrects him to say, "But what the OC Bible should have said is 
thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. Indeed. She makes that distinction of like, there are, there are people who are animals and there are people who are humans. Great point. <clears throat> Absolutely. And that's when we learn that the great revolt took away this amazing crutch, right? And that's when we start to learn about the layout of the setting, which is post great revolt schools were started to train human talents, Benny Gesserit schools. Uh, and then of course uh, the spacing guild, we, she says, we have two chief survivors of those ancient schools, the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild. The Guild uh, has a pure mathematics. The so Bene Gesserit performs another function to which Paul says politics, and she's shocked at his awareness because that's exactly what it is. Because Jessica's like, I didn't even tell him. Like, I didn't give him the spoilers. I didn't give him the cheat sheets. He just, he <laughs> no knows. He's 15 and he knows. And she's like, ooh, you did that in remarkably few clues, right? She's very impressed, Mohayim. Yes, indeed. And I also love how she, even uh, the, the Reverend Mother notes, it's a quick little thing where she says the two schools, Benny Gesserit and the Spacing Guild, the guild, so we think, emphasizes almost pure mathematics. And I love how secretive these schools are. Like even the Benny Gesserit with all of their knowing and all of their own like influence across the politics of the universe, even they only have a, a, an inkling of what the Spacing Guild does because each of them are so secret. Indeed really cool yeah we move over to paul saying well you say i may be this kwisatz hatteract what's that a human gamja bar i love that he thinks it could be a weapon like yes so I'm, I, that that could be some sort of you know world conquering thing is that what this is and in in his mom is like ooh, yikes like don't say that <laughs> <laughs> because because it's it could be considered offensive to mahayim so jessica sort of is like uh-oh Oh, you know, she's a bit taken aback by him suggesting that they think that way. <clears throat> Getting too ballsy, Paul. That's right. That's right. But um, we talk, uh, there's a lot of talk about falsehood. Again, we get back to deception being uh, part of one of the thematic pushes in this book, which is you take it to improve your ability to detect falsehood. She's referring to something called a truthsayer drug. We learn that Mohayim is in fact a truthsayer, right? Yeah, the emperor's truth sayer. The emperor's truth sayer, the aforementioned Padishah emperor. Yes, indeed. And what I love about this part here, we get another kind of like further elaboration on the mystery and what the Bene Gesserit mm -hmm. do and what they care about when she describes the drug being dangerous, that lots of people have tried to take it and they have failed. But one of the things she describes is that what the truthsayer drug really does is give them this ability to look into the past, right. which I found super interesting. She says, we look down so many avenues of the past, but only feminine avenues. Yet there's a place where no truthsayer can see. We are repelled by it, terrorized. It is said that a man will come one day and find in the gift of the drug his inward eye, and he will look where we cannot into both feminine and masculine pasts. So what I find super interesting about mm -hmm. that is... This, you know, truthsayer drug is is its ability, all it really gives you is the ability to almost like look into your own genetic memory like, and see the memories of, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of ancestors and like right. put together this picture of reality that's more detailed that allows you to almost start to look into the future because of this extensive knowledge of the past. But we find out that the Bene Gesserit, because they're a school of, of women, they can only look into their feminine pasts, so their feminine ancestors. Right. The, the important thing about the Kwisatz Hatteract is that they can look into male and female ancestors and gain so much more knowledge. Which, I, which, is, which is ultimately fascinating because obviously the Bene Gesserit 
line continues as a result of male genetics, right? We, we still understand that, you know, sex is done the old fashioned way in the book of Dune, but it's interesting it's that they- It's and the Gurchin. Like right. We always do. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, but it's interesting that they can only look back through the feminine line. That is fascinating, which is why the Kwisatz Haderach is, will be known to be able to do two. And that's where some contention still arises between Ohio and wondering, hmm, it should have been a girl child, suggesting the girl child could have looked into both pasts as well. But there is still curiosity around the boy, Paul, and in, in his part to play in all of this. Right. I mean, it's essentially uh, Reverend Mother admitting that there is some possibility that Paul might be the Kwisatz Haderach. Like, right. Jessica should not have done what she did and changed her child to a male, you know, I guess in the womb. Correct. But at the same time, she senses that, yeah, there could be some possibility that he's it. Right. And I do like the inference. Well, it's not even that. It's a direct quote to where he's curious. Oh, um, many men have tried the drug, so many, but none have succeeded. They have tried and failed, Paul wonders. She says, oh, no, no, no. They've tried and died. <laughs> so it's not unprecedented for a male to attempt the truth sayer drug in this Benny Gesserit school. But, you know, they, it just it doesn't work. They die. They can't do it. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Not an easy drug. <laughs> so what a great introduction for Paul. What a great introduction, uh, introduction for a lot of the themes that might take place in this book. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a great and and, and unsurprising beefy chapter uh, regarding what we're going to be directly contrasted with when we get into discussing uh, the next chapter here, which is going to be the introduction of the Harkonnens. Oh, it's so good. To attempt an understanding of Muad'Dib without understanding his mortal enemies, the Harkonnens is to attempt seeing truth without knowing falsehood. It is the attempt to see the light without knowing darkness. It cannot be. From Manual of Muad'Di by the Princess Irulan. Wow. What a fascinating chapter. In other words, it's almost suggesting one could barely exist without the other. They're, right. they're opposing that, forces. Exactly. That they define each other. That you can't have one without the other. They define each other, indeed. What a great introduction and what a great contrast from the first chapter. Here's something I love about this chapter, and it is a little bit shorter because obviously, you know, these characters, although important, are not as important as Paul and Mohayim and Jessica. But here's what I love about this chapter. I love that even though there is cruelty, deception, and dominance very present in this chapter, there's also intelligence deception and brilliance so yeah we're going to introduce the antithesis of the atreides house but it's not going to be buffoonery it's not going to be stupidity and it's not going to be you know slap dick bad guys these are clearly you know, antagonists unlike the uh baron harkonnen in the 1984 film <laughs> right he's completely lacks any guile or or intelligence but we see right away that he is just it, it, think think about the way this scene is set. Yeah, we've got the Baron, we've got uh, Fade Rautha, his nephew, and we have, of course, his mentat Paita de Vries. Right? Should we? I think one thing that might be useful, kind of like we talked about Chome, should we talk a little bit about what the mentats are? 
Yeah, because I think it relates back to the Butlerian Jihad and the Great Revolt. Right, right. They are essentially the replacement for computers. Right, but they're people. But they are people. So they highly trained and prescient. Yes, they're super smart. They make calculations. They're they're human data's for lack of a better term, except they have all of the all of the uh, what am I trying to say trappings of the flesh because they're still people. <laughs> Like a sense of humor, unlike data. <laughs> a sense of humor or even strange desires, as we're going to learn yes, with Python. Creepy desires. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much how that works. So, as you learn from the first chapter, we know that Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who runs House Harkonnen, has been overseeing Arrakis for 80 years, but is now leaving. Yeah. We also know that he is the archenemy of Paul, uh, of Duke Leto Atreides, of House Atreides and that he has it in for the family, and that he, we are sort of sitting amidst almost a victory lap for the Baron because he's quite aware of plans that are going to unfold very soon. And uh, we don't, I don't think we, do we, I guess we do get into them in this chapter. And then, oh, we do. Yeah. And then all of what that means for the future of House Atreides. But all of this back and forth, this, this dialogue is great. And dude, also just the setting of the scene, the opening of this chapter is you know, we don't even see the Baron clearly yet. He's not described. We hear, mm. we see his hand described as he's rolling this gigantic, ornate, really big and beautiful globe, mm-hmm. which I don't think they outright say it, but it is supposed to be a globe of Arrakis that he's, yes. he's you know, rolling it and showing it to Fade Ralpha. Indeed. And Fade is there because Fade has been, been set to observe this observation. Fade is younger Younger, you know, nice-looking young guy. The Baron is this giant man uh, beyond comprehension, a big sort of Jabba the Hutt type character. And he is he is talking about, I believe he just says, Arrakis, truly unique, a superb setting for a unique victory. Right? Observe closely, and you too fade. He's talking about how this is the place where we win. Right, right. Which is, I love how it's confusing for us as the for, as the reader at first, because you're like, well, wait a minute. They're giving up their control of Arrakis, and, mm-hmm. and the House of Trades is taking it over. How how can that lead to a Harkonnen victory? Mm-hmm. But we realize that it's all a very calculated conspiracy that's also being, uh, you know, they're, they're essentially partnered secretly with the Emperor. Indeed, yes. Partnered secretly with the Emperor. That's a huge reveal towards the end of the chapter. But this whole thing is... Pay attention. And he says, your offer of a meeting. So, so Piter, what we do learn is that before this chapter occurred, that Harkonnen sent an offer to meet with Leto, which of course was refused. And we learn that your offer of a meeting is refused. I have, uh, I have oft times met your treachery in this all men know, is what Leto ended up saying back to the Harkonnen man, uh, uh, to, to, to Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, right? Right. And he says, you know, the art of Canley still admirers in the empire. He signs a duke later of Atreides. Piter began to laugh. Oh, of Arrakis. Oh my, this is almost too rich. So Piter finds it funny that Leto signed it as <laughs> duke later of Arrakis, almost rubbing it in Harkonnen's face <laughs> since they just got booted off the planet after being there 80 years. And Canley is just another word to describe vendetta. Right, right. That they, they if, if crossed, they will retaliate. Right. And Piter suggests, well, you've made the peace gesture. The forms have been obeyed. 
So there's tension between the two houses, which extends into their pasts, which the book isn't getting into yet. But through the characters' actions and dialogues, you're to learn that this is in fact true. I mean, the chapter heading, as you describe, paints it quite clearly that we have a problem. These two houses have a problem. And we're setting up our central protagonist here. And dude, I actually love <clears throat> all of the meaning that's kind of hidden in that, that one quote from Piter, where he says, you made the peace gesture. The forms have been obeyed. Mm. Like, that's a huge part of the intrigue of this book is that there are all these, like, almost like rituals and, and rules among the houses of how they should behave and how they transfer power and holdings. And he's basically saying, you followed all the rules. So by looking at it from the outside, this is all on the level. Like, you, you handed over Arrakis as commanded by the emperor to House Atreides, and you made the peace gesture of offering to meet. So on paper... We're just doing what we're supposed to do. We're all fine. There's no, there's no conspiracy here. It all looks fine. A hundred percent. And another awesome part of this, Matt, is when we get a description of what's called the Mentat Assassin. So to be clear, a Mentat isn't just a Mentat. There may be other things too. In this case, an assassin, right? And right. he has blue within blue eyes. That's a feature that means something because we know that Paul dreamed of somebody with blue within blue eyes. A right, woman, if I'm not mistaken, back on Arrakis, right? And this is where, you know, a grin flashes across Piter's face and he says, but Baron, never has revenge been more beautiful. It is to see a plane of the most exquisite treachery to make Leto exchange Caladan for Dune and without alternative because the Emperor orders it. How waggish of you. <laughs> yep, pretty cool. Just I like... Tackling villain. Yep, I love all of the discussions between these guys, how... how uh, how Harkonnen says, someday I'll have you strangled, Piter. To which Baron says, of a certainty, Baron. Like, <laughs> I, this this is, paints such an interesting relationship between Piter and the Baron. Because we're, we're seeing that, of course, you'll hold back because, you, because I'm still useful. And you're not right. going to waste me. I, like, I love this idea that they both know what's in their futures. Like, you'll get rid of me someday and you'll kill me but not, not a second <laughs> earlier because you're not stupid. And that's, again, this, this, it, I find it so interesting that they have this big deception, this big plan of deceit for Leto and these traps. We're going to start to learn about, again, deception being this victory, like you know, hi, hiding in the trap that you're stuck in and deceiving the trapper, all of these traps and deceptions. And, uh, and these guys are quite open. I find it very ironic that, that he's both open about, I'm going to have you strangled someday, Piter. <laughs> you know, he just tells him straight out. Absolutely. And I mean, and this whole scene, what's so interesting too, is that it's all, they're only laying out their plan because the Baron is trying to educate his nephew because yes. he's going to be the one taking over his barony and, and inheriting the planet, inheriting the wealth. And he's like, okay, time to show you my fucking schemes. That's right. <laughs> how this shit works. That's right. And uh, I like how there's a distinction the Baron makes as far as he's concerned between him and Piter because the Baron says, I cause pain out of necessity, but he takes a delight in it. It's interesting. Yeah. And that's when we learn that there's somebody named Dr. Yue who will move against the Atreides soon, right? right that becomes right. very that, important. That, that that will, and once he moves on him, he says that that will be the end of all the Atreides. Right. There's more discussion here about Piter saying, you know, why don't we just kill him? I mean, put a kinjaw between the Duke's ribs. And he's like, no, 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 no. 
he must know I encompass his doom in entirety. I'm paraphrasing here, but something along. And the other great houses must learn of it because it will give them pause. So this talks a little bit about the politics and without getting off in the weeds, it's basically a system of various levels of strength of house all assembled in something called the Landschrad, which is overseen by this emperor. And houses probably have alliance with other houses and houses have rivalries as we're seeing between the Atreides and the Harkonnen here. And I find it interesting that the Baron is, no, 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 no. Everyone will know that I have encompassed his doom because it will give them pause in the future if they want to raise a hand against us. Right. And a big part of that too, that's sort of uh, alluded to here, but he's not saying it outright is that he will be partnered with the emperor uh, the, the Padishah Emperor in order to destroy Atreides. And I think that's a big part of, you know, it's secret right now, but once they execute this plan of theirs to destroy House Atreides and essentially reinvade uh, Arrakis and have it placed in their control once again, is that the the rest of the houses will see that the Emperor sort of favors House Harkonnen, at least in this arrangement, and that will make uh, House Harkonnen a little more impervious to attack. Right. He does mention that they will be disguised in Harkonnen uh, livery. Livery? How do you say that word? Livery? Yeah, livery. Uh, Which I find interesting because they don't want that, the emperor doesn't want that to get out sort of explicitly, but maybe he's okay with that being a rumor, right? Right, exactly. That's that's really, again, deception, assumption, a lot of politicking here, which is, Hey, I heard I heard that they sent Sadakar that the that the, the Harkonnen didn't have that many troops, you know, guys sitting around a table talking about this. And they're like, "Well, we don't know for certain if the emperor backs him." So just that threat of the possibility which a keeps the emperor innocent in any type of wrongdoing here should he support the baron, but it also gives other houses pause because of the complete destruction of House Leto Atreides, so the Baron Harkonnen thinks, in addition to the possibility that the Emperor did sign off on it and also help logistically right, without it right. being explicitly known. Because if it was, that'd be criminal. And you'd have probably many great houses revolting against the Padishah Emperor if it was, in fact, known for certain. Right, exactly. But nobody's going to take it upon themselves to say, well, let's go ahead and revolt, because if you're wrong, you've now condemned your house to death. Over what, over what might be just a rumor. Right. I love right. it. The, the information slash disinformation and how one would use it to their advantage and all this politicking is super fascinating. Yeah. No, I love it. I love how much that it, it's, it's deception and exposure at the same time. Like mm-hmm. they want it to be known, but they can't, they can't overplay their hand. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion between the men that continues to go on where they're talking about, you promised me the Lady Jessica. So Piter's... We learn that Piter is now directly connected to somebody in chapter one, Lady Jessica, because he desires her for what we can only imagine is horrific things because the Baron even asks, for what? For pain, question mark? Which, of <laughs> course, the Baron thinks is very odd, but, of course, I guess suppose he said, well, Piter, that will be your reward. Lady Jessica will be your reward should we succeed in this. And they talk about all of this. And... We get Fade sort of getting impatient with all of this. I love this lesson here. Listen to my nephew. He aspires to rule my barony, yet he cannot rule himself because he won't sit still and pay attention, right? Right. And he says, I'm going to teach you this mentat is is something, but I want you to understand the wisdom of what I'm going to show you. 
And he just says blatantly right to Piter, he consumes too much spice. So this is the, this is the Baron talking about Piter right in front of Fade. He might have come right. directly from the Arakeen labor pool, efficient Piter, but he's emotional and prone to passionate outbursts. <laughs> Even he can err. And, and Piter's like, are you just going to talk about me right in front of me? And he's like, you are. And <laughs> this is where the Baron flexes. You are on display. Now shut up and listen while I teach the boy a lesson, right? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is also where we get to sort of begin to infer that the spice that um, that the Mintat consumes is part of part of what enables him to to have the the essentially the Mintat abilities, and that also it causes the blue eyes. Indeed, uh, and that's why he even says that he you, he might have come from the Arakeen labor pool, that planet where the spice comes from, where everybody is so soaked in it that their eyes are blue. It's great, and 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 that's where that. His his tastes, the spice, the blue eyes. But, you know, I love how Piter is like, oh, are my tastes too expensive for you? A bit of a misstep in this verbal fencing match because he just says, my dear Piter, your pleasures are what tie you to me, right? <laughs> I love that. He, I love that this Mentath, this brilliant man of a million calculations, can't, can't see that in that moment. You know, maybe he was being sarcastic. It's tough to say. But I just love how the pound's like, you fool. How do you not see this? This is this is important for you to know, and that's he's like basically like I can afford all the spice that you want, and you can't. Right? <laughs> you that's what ties you to me. You need me exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, this is where they get really explicit with the plans. They talk about how Duke Leto will embark on a spacing guild liner for Arrakis. It's going to drop them at the city of Arakeen. He has all of this laid out. He says, you know. He's going there because it's going to be easier to defend. Like everything that he can think Leto has thought of, the Baron is doing, right? And then he says, well, a couple things are going to happen. Uh, House traders will go to Arrakis. We must not, however, ignore the possibility that Duke has contacted the guild to remove him to place him safely outside the system. And he starts talking about, in other words, without getting tied up in all the minutiae, he's saying here's a couple of different things he may do or, or he may not do. And a lot of this comes from Piter's Mentat calculations. He says there are preparations that indicate when a house is going to renegade. The Duke appears to be doing none of those things, right? Right. So they're saying that there's a low probability of that. That's right. Uh, He also goes on to say, uh, as long as the guild remains effectively outside Imperial control, how could it be otherwise? How else could spies and assassins move about? And he's talking about, we've got diversions at the residency. If he tries to take to the desert, we have an agent in the desert in the form of this Pardo Kynes, who we're going to learn about in the future of the book. And uh, he says, Dr. He goes, now, now, Thufir Hawat is, is going to have an obvious suspect in Dr. Yue. Dr. Yue, we know, is part of House Atreides, but he's an inside man. So Dr. Yue has been compromised by the Harkonnens which is unheard of because of something called souk school conditioning. Let's talk about right. that for a minute. Yeah, it's it's famous and it's supposed to be incorruptible, that there's no way to remove it without killing the person you're trying to remove it from. But they have, and we don't know what it is exactly yet, but we, we understand here that they have found some lever to pull that overrides it. That's right. And then they even have thought beyond Duke Dr. Yue's compromise because they said, Here's what we are going to do, however. We're going to put Thufir Hawat on the trail of Jessica to be the one who is compromised. 
So they're going in saying that House of Trades is going to know that somebody's been compromised. They're going to pick up on that quick. They're probably going to suspect UA, but we want to put their attention onto the Lady Jessica. Right. And the reason he wants that is that he believes that that suspicion will so overwhelm uh, Thufir Hawa, the Mintat for the Atreides, that he's not going to see the rest of the plan. He's going to be so shocked and overtaken by Lady Jessica being a tr- possible traitor and maybe even trying to kill her own son that that will completely distract him from the rest of the clues. That's right. Yep. And that's when they go on to lay out the rest of the plan about how, you know, the Harkin Livery, Harkonnen Livery, or disguised in Har- uh, Harkonnen's disguised in uh, Emperor Livery, Sardaukar Livery, uh, how they're going to roll in. They got this whole plan from beginning to end. And uh, that's how it's going to be, right? Yeah. They will overthrow them. And also, one thing that he mentions is that he'll be reinstalled um, as the 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 overseer of Arrakis, and they, you know, which it, it hasn't really been explained yet, but Arrakis is essentially the most profitable thing you can own in the universe. It's the only place that the spice comes from, and so many other people and industries depend on the spice that you have a lot of power if you control Arrakis. So he will be reinstalled as the 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 overseer of Arrakis. And he just he talks about having a permanent directorship within Chome. So that would really elevate the whole house of Harkonnen. Absolutely. And if we go back to the Chome analog, uh, Amazon analogy, imagine Arrakis as this. Imagine if the only place that you could fuel up your fleet of trucks across the country of the United States was at this particular gas station, this giant, say, three-acre large gas station called Arrakis. The Whoever only, owned the that, source. yeah, and there's no other way. There's no alternative. There's no solar. There's no this. There's no that. None of that exists. The only way for Amazon trucks to go anywhere is if they go to the ga- old gas station Arrakis, <laughs> the old Arrakis Seven Eleven. So now think of how powerful and 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 wealthy one would be should they control Arrakis, right? Because right. Chome relies on Arrakis, because Chome relies on the guild. To, to, to traverse the galaxy for any product that's moved in any way, shape, or form. Or anything, the, military, anybody who wants to move across space must have the guild, the spacing guild do it because their navigators use the spice to navigate. And you can't just take spice, get in a, in a highliner and fly around. It doesn't work that way. It takes a very specific uh, type of approach, which we'll learn about as time goes on. Absolutely. So, this plan will both destroy the Atreides, they believe, and reinstall them as the the immensely important leaders of Arrakis. That's right. Perfect. And uh, we learned that that's where he says, you know, even if he takes to the desert, we have our man Kynes out there who's loyal to the emperor, right? So, if 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 right. Duke tries to take to the take to the sands, a it's a nightmare, and b we <laughs> we, we have a man out there. <clears throat> Right, so there's no there's no avenue he can escape down essentially. And in this chapter, reaffirms something you said in the in the in the first chapter, Matthew, which is this idea about sort of having a precognition in a sense, right? Because the loveliest of all, Piter said, is that the Duke will know too. He knows now. He can feel the trap. Right, right. Like he doesn't understand what it is yet, but he knows he's walking into danger. To which the Baron says, it is true, he knows. He could not help but know, more is the pity. (laughs) So fascinating, right? Because you can't just not go. 
You, you think about this from Duke Leto's perspective, who we don't even know yet, but put yourself in his shoes for a minute, Matthew. You have a, you, you run Caladan. You have this, you're the, you're the Duke of Caladan. You run the whole planet. You're getting moved to Arrakis. We already discovered, we already told you about gas station Arrakis and how powerful that should be the name of the podcast about how, (laughs) about how powerful this place is and what it means to the Imperium. Okay. You can't not go. You also know that your hated rival, which we can't even conceptualize. Most of us don't have a hated rival. (laughs) I hope not. Right? Yeah, thank God. But think about that for just a minute. Your hated rival has been there for 80 years, and you guys hate each other. That's scary. Like, ooh, what did he leave behind? It's, I mean, you know, I know landlords terrified to walk into their own property after a bad tenant, let alone the idea of, you know, like, we have to go to, we have to go to this place where they were for 80 years. How are they going to be happy? You think they're going to leave it just all, you know, hunky-dory for us as we show up? (laughs) I don't think so. Dude, we also, at the very close of this chapter, we find out what the Baron actually looks like, which is interesting, Mm. that he's described as being so grossly and immensely fat that he has suspenser balls, which I find really interesting, like that little piece of technology, like they're almost like little uh, levitating globes, and he has a whole belt of them attached to his waist so that it can help move his gigantic body around because he couldn't even (laughs) walk without them. Lovely. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yep. Harness to his flesh. I am hungry, the Baron rumbled. <laughs> Sin <laughs> for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Yep. And so I believe they, do they not tell us that they say, let's see, it says he might weigh 200 kilograms. 200 right. kilograms is 440, 450 pounds. Ooh, big boy. It's a big fella. <laughs> All right. So that concludes that chapter. That's a, that's a great, oh God, it's such a great contrast from the first one, isn't it? Right, right. The scheming, the manipulation, and there's just no respect for one another at all. Like it's, it's all relationships of utility. Yep. Relationships of complete utility. We, we, it's funny because it, it makes us wonder how much does he care about Fade, right? His, his nephew, he seems to, it's hard to say at this point, but Fade is a classic young person, but it's interesting to compare Fade to Paul, isn't it? Right, because he's so unlike Paul. I mean, like, what is the, one of the first things we learn about Paul is his hyper-attentiveness to detail and the minutia of observation, like what he learned from, you know, the Bene Gesserit teachings from his mother, that he observes everything very closely and so before he even opens his mouth, he's already assessed the situation. He's already assessing the Reverend Mother. He's really paying attention. And we have uh, the total opposite with Fade, like straightening out his little tunic and looking at his clothes and being bored. He's not paying attention at all. Yeah, complete, complete surface thoughts. He's utterly bored. And to be frank, probably most people would be in this. What, what I do find interesting about this, though, is, is as I'm saying that, I'm starting to think about it differently, but... Imagine if if any one of us had an opportunity, if, if whoever's reading this book or listening to this podcast had this opportunity to sit down and observe this conversation, we'd probably be utterly entranced by it because of the deception, because of the words being used. And fade simply isn't. That could be one of two things, or maybe a combination of the two. Either it's just not that interesting to him because he's a surface level thinker and not deep at all, or maybe it's just so commonplace in the Harkonnen world that this kind of talk is it doesn't phase him. 
<laughs> yep, yep. Lies and schemes, stabbing people in the back. I know, yada, yada, yada. That's what I mean. Think about that. That's that's almost how I think of it. It's like he just is like, eh, I don't care. What Par for the course. What did you guys talk about? The usual backstabbing, kinjal between ribs, spice, you know, torturing the lady Jessica. The usual for a young man <laughs> named Fade. <laughs> just nasty shit. You know we nasty. We nasty over here on, uh, on Geedy Prime, I believe is the planet. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Good stuff. What do you say we dive into chapter three here, pal? Let's get after it. Thus spoke Saint Aaliyah of the knife. The Reverend Mother must combine the seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable majesty of a virgin goddess, holding these attributes in tension so long as the powers of her youth endure. For when youth and beauty have gone, she will find that the place between, once occupied by tension has become a wellspring of cunning and resourcefulness. From, Muad- from Muad'Dib <laughs> family commentaries by the Princess Irulan. Wow. The older they get, the more wily and cunning they are. Mm. I guess that makes Mohayim quite wily and cunning. It's true. Ancient lady. Ancient Bene Gesserit witch. So as we dive into this chapter, you know, the overall thing that happens here is this interesting discussion between Mohayim and Jessica. Um, a little bit of probably you would say at this point, even though we're still very early in the book, seemingly uncharacteristic emotional exchanges between the women. And then we get into more discussion with between Paul and Mohayim. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this. This is good stuff here. Oh, hell yeah. No, this is a really interesting chapter. It starts with, well, Jessica, what have you to say for yourself? So this whole thing is going to be about her decision to have a boy. Right. Right, which is a massive decision that what she as she describes hopelessly complicates the the essentially the plans of the Bene Gesserit, the the overall arching narrative that they're trying to work toward. Right. And she says, I had a son. I mean they, they kind of go back and forth. I had a son. You were told to bear only daughters to the Atreides. Right? That's huge. It meant so much to him. Ah. So we learn here that Jessica you know, when we think of royal marriages, I think a lot of times we don't always think that there may be love involved. And I think it's pretty clear that Jessica has a lot of feelings for Leto because she wanted to do this thing that she knows would really matter to him, which is fascinating because she had to have known that there's going to be consequence to this decision. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, for one, I feel like it goes against the Bene Gesserit way because it's a super emotional one. Like she chooses to have a son to please her husband, essentially, that it meant so much to him that she wanted to do this for him out of love. Right. And she tries and to is- misdirect Mohaim, doesn't she? I sensed the possibility, she says, when asked, did you think you could produce the Kwisatch Haderach? And then, and then Mohaim's like, first of all, you did this for your duke. Don't ever say otherwise. She's, that's, I'm paraphrasing here. And she just says, you, his desires don't figure into this. Very plainly, she says it. What, so I like this. What does this do, Matt? Well, it establishes <clears throat> that despite the ducal title and running an entire planet, that there are still things beyond comprehension to these powerful people being discussed that are being discussed right here between these two women being Mohayim and Jessica. Right, right. And I mean, her. she points out that what they were hoping for with an Atreides daughter is to wed her to a Harkonnen heir and essentially seal this breach of, of hatred between the two houses to essentially, you know, combine them and, and end all of the, the, you know, the feuding between them 
because that's evidently necessary for the larger Bene Gesserit plan. I find that very interesting because it goes back to the way you described you can't define one without having the other as a reference point. Or I think you just said you can't, one defines the other, I think is how you succinctly put it. Which makes it seem like you would think about this back in sort of medieval times, this idea of using marriages to cement alliances. And this this seems almost like that, but probably way deeper, way more beyond comprehension, doesn't it? It seems to be more than just a political alliance. Right, right. This is... This is something to like soothe the 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 all of the warring that's going on and and get past it almost with with some sort of metaphysical property though not not just like well we you know the the the, the Duke of Normandy's daughter is wed to you know the Duchess of Brittany so we're going to cease hostilities it, it seems more deeper than that doesn't it it seems more like wait a minute here, this is something metaphysical, perhaps be even beyond description. To, to healing this great rift could mean physical, could mean war, but it, it almost feels like there's a deeper meaning here. Yeah, oh no, definitely. I mean, there are, it, it feels like there are unspoken depths to the whole Bene Gesserit plan. Yeah. Um, she, they describe how people are just sort of, I mean, all, all of these larger things, as I was just intimating at, they, they're kind of just... You know, all all of this is flotsam in the path of the flood, right? The way she describes Chome, the great houses. It reminds me of that great line from Star Wars where Vader just says, the ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Right. It's right. almost like she's saying that, like, the Chome, these men, these great houses, the land shroud, it doesn't matter compared to this. Right. I mean, to me, it kind of even, like, elaborates the philosophy of the Bane Jesuit because she's like, Look at all these big, powerful, you know, people and institutions that, you know, influence and control so many things right now. They're still just small players in the long, you know, stretch of time. Like we're not, we're looking way past their influence that just happens to be, you know, here currently. Mm. She goes on to talk about how they have a three-point civilization, the imperial household balanced against the federated great houses of the land shroud, and in between them, the guild. And she says, the tripod is the most unstable of all structures. <laughs> right, right. It's great. Lots of alliances can be made between two of them to overthrow the one of them, and it's just inherently unstable. Right. And, and, and it seems like, based on the mood of Mohayim in this chapter, that she's saying, we, we, we're now sort of in damage control mode, right? She seems a bit concerned. We, we have right. to salvage the bloodlines, I believe, is the word she says. Yeah, no, she, the quote is, uh, all we can hope for now is to pre- prevent this from erupting into general conflagration and to salvage what we can of these key bloodlines. Right. And it's interesting because Jessica sort of takes this martyr approach where she says, well, I guess I'll pay for my mistake. And Mohayan quickly says, and your son will pay too. Like this, mm-hmm. you, you, this decision goes far beyond, uh, you know, in, in, your desire to shield him. They talk about, she's like, I'll shield my son. She's like, and make him weak. What do you mean? You can't, right, you, right. you, you, the, this, uh, you, <laughs> you guys are, are in for it on Arrakis. And, and that's when Jessica's like, God, is it such a terrible place? I mean, how bad can Arrakis be? And that's when we learn about the Missionaria Protectiva. One of the most interesting things in the book to me is this, is this. Totally. This is maybe my favorite like aspect of the lore. I think this shit is so cool. Yeah. Um, 
And we don't know a lot about it at this point, other than she says it has softened it somewhat. So Mohaim is suggesting that this Missionaria Protectiva has softened the planet of Dune somewhat, which, of course, we're going to learn about more as time goes on. I feel like all we need to know about it right now is that it involves culture. It involves, you know, changing this planet's culture a little bit to make them more receptive to to ideas that the Bene Gesserit want them to have. Correct. Yep. It's a it's sort of planetary mind control, but done through influence versus, say, overt warfare. Right. Right. Which is the the Bene Gesserit way. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Good. We get back to the deception here. Right. Totally. Well, there's an interesting moment in this chapter, Matthew, where we we are are presented with something not obvious. We have we have yet to see outside of Jessica's feelings for Paul, we're 38, 39, 40 pages in. We've yet to see any tenderness outside of Jessica's feelings for Paul, correct? I mean, yeah, we no, certainly saw none from the Harkonnen. No, definitely not. Um and we see some here, right? Which is Mohaim says, you are as dear to me as any of my own daughters, but I cannot let that interfere with my duty. Because Jessica is saying, you know, she says, Jessica, girl, I wish I could stand in your place and take your sufferings, but each of us must make our own path. It's, it's a very nice comforting moment from this witch crone, witch shadow, old woman you know, the one who made her son endure all this pain that she, of course, endured herself as she remembers. There's this moment in this chapter where Jessica thinks back on her taking the test and actually reflexively looks down at her, you know, flexing her hand, right? And right. and I like this, you know, it it, it humanizes these characters a little bit more. Uh, and, and to go back to the, to go back to the, the light and darkness at the beginning of chapter two, the attempt to understand Moadib without understanding his mortal enemies, Right. Is, is saying one can't know truth without knowing falsehood. It, we've we've seen this very delicate balance between these two sides, and we're almost seeing two sides of humanity here. Benny Gesserit are still human. We've seen the deception, the the manipulation, the the uh, the different things that happened in the Harkonnen camp. Even though it was brief, we're now seeing that despite witch woman shadow opal eyes, all this stuff, predatory grin that there is some comfort to be displayed here. Right, right. That like, <clears throat> it's almost like when she's plugged into the larger Bene Gesserit plan, that's what makes her cold and calculating and she's very focused on that purpose, but she is still much more of a, a human being with some tenderness to her. Mm. Certainly far more than any Harkonnen. What you did, Jessica, and why you did it, we both know. But kindness forces me to tell you there's little chance your lad will be the Bene Gesserit totality. You mustn't let yourself hope too much. And this is a very emotional, indeed. And it's a very emotional chapter. There's tears, there's wiping tears away. Even Mohayim herself at some point in this chapter is, is, thinks emotionally about this. We talk, they talk about loneliness. Of course, the Duke is away. He's busy. He's preparing for a move. Jessica talks about the sort of loneliness she feels, you know, we're, we're, we're reminded that humans should never submit to animals. And she actually sobs and just says, I've been so lonely And the old woman or Mohayim says it should be one of the tests. Humans are almost always lonely because they're removed. They, they, 
removed by their purpose, they they see it. Yeah. Humans are almost always lonely. Hmm. What an interesting statement. And it's and it's and it, and if you think about it, you know, we're forced to wonder, is this an affliction of their station? It must be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and especially that she's she's royalty and Bene Gesserit at the same time. She's pretty removed from people in a lot of ways. Indeed. We break into conversation here between Paul and Ohayim about his dreams, about what he remembers, what he doesn't remember. He remembers the ones that are interesting to him. We, you know, how do you know the difference, right? In, right. He just says, I just do. Well, because he also had talked before about, you know, some of his dreams, the dreams he specifically remembers are the ones that have events in them that come true. Indeed. And, and he can tell which ones are going to come true and which ones aren't. That's like how he decides. That's right. We learn about the stamp of strangeness. It's a great, it's, it's an interesting way, an interesting type of ver- verbiage, I guess you would say, because of the way, <laughs> the way he says he dreamed about a skinny girl with big eyes, blue within blue, no whites in them. We've already heard that description referring to Piter. We learn that, um, you know, this girl uses that term, the stamp of strangeness, to which, you know, Mohaim's like, what is, hmm, interesting, right? She's, the, the way that's discussed, the way she's referred to. Uh, we learn about this place in the rocks and how he feels waiting and how she refers to him as Usul, or maybe that's the place. So there's fragments here. And, and Jessica's trying to get to the bottom of this dream. What, what does this mean? Because they're talking about my home world. To Paul's like, but my home world's Caledon. So he's... He's being a bit confused. Right, right. He doesn't understand the meaning of, of any of this yet. And I do like the, the moment where he thinks, well, maybe maybe she was calling me Usul. Indeed. Um, because yeah, that's another interesting thing, too. There are so many names for Paul. Like, we already, you know, the Kwisatz Haderach, the Muad'Dib. Like, we're getting all these different names. Like, to me, it kind of indicates that Paul's identity is going to change a lot. Mm. Um, and that also, sense. that his identity may not just change a lot, but may be considered differently by many different types of people. Right, exactly. Different groups. Right. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's like thinking about gods almost. Like what, what it may be called to one culture may be called something different to another, and they may be possibly talking about the same thing. Who knows, right? Yeah, yeah. But this continues, you know, where he says that he senses she's afraid of him, but trying not to show it. Right, that's a very interesting and very perceptive takeaway from a dream. Mm, yeah, that and also that it is the dream that he believes will come true. That he will have this interaction in the future. There's a poem, right? There's this uh, one of Gurney Halleck's poems, which they go through. Which I don't know. Do we need to read it? I don't think so. I think it's mostly just describing Caladan and indeed and, and how it's going to, he's essentially using that poem to describe his home world to this girl in the dream. That's right. We do have an important piece of dialogue where young man as a proctor of the Bene Gesserit, I seek the Kwisatz Haderach, the male who truly can become one of us. Your mother sees this possibility in you, but she sees with the eyes of a mother. Possibly I see too, but no more. Right. Only possibility. That's all she sees. But I like that she finally just levels with him. No more riddles, right? Yeah, no more, yeah. I'm testing you to see if you're a, a human. I'm suggesting you may be human. Oh, pain's in the box. Maybe not. This is the Gamjabar. It kills only animals. She finally just says, listen, this is what I'm doing here. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, <clears throat> what I like next is how she, she essentially says, do you want 
a few hints at why mm. they failed. The, the males before you who tried to essentially test to see if they were the Kwisatz Haderach. And he's like annoyed. Paul is, is like insulted by this idea of, oh, you're going to give me hints? Then you don't great. really know anything. Um, but what I love that this leads to is this idea where she says, that which submits rules. Right. And he's like, what? What does that even mean? Well, that's a hint. Um, and th- this, this metaphor she uses, I really love. The willow submits to the wind and prospers until one day it is many willows, a wall against the wind. That is the willow's purpose. And That's right. that I love, again, because it encapsulates that view of don't fight against this purpose. Don't try to, to, don't try to push your own way too much. Like, submit to a degree that gives you an advantage in, like, the long haul of things. Yeah, that's great. And this is where Paul starts to consider purpose again, right? Terrible purpose. Mm-hmm. But she also quite plainly says, you know, there's nothing to be done for him. We would have done it regarding his dad. We may be able right. to salvage you, but for your father, nothing. Uh, when when you've learned to accept this as fact, you've learned the real Benny Jesuit. Listen, and Paul is just sort of stunned by these words, but he notices how much they impact his mom, which right. concerns him, of course. And uh, he, he doesn't really get a second to digest this other than we know the reader. We have yet to meet this Leto Atreides. Yes, indeed. But I love this idea that the the Bene Gesserit already see him as unsalvageable. Like his place in history is already kind of concluded. Like they're Mm -hmm. not, they don't, they don't involve him in their plans anymore. Yeah. Uh, Back, back to her, that which meant rules piece. I love that. I love this idea of in leadership, you know, if you, if you think you are going to lead, then don't do the thing that all of them seem to be doing at this stage of, of what we know about this setting. And, and be smart about it, you know, submit to rules, so to speak. It's, it's in the willow, the willow example is good, but she's almost exa- suggesting in, a, in, a, in plain English, you have to kind of know when you need to compromise or, or at least appear to, to gain an advantage, right? Right, right. To, to not fight so much against the path that it kind of ends up destroying you, but go with the flow a little bit sometimes. It almost, it, and, it, and, it, and it begs the question, perhaps she's referring to the terrible purpose. She, she comments on the willow's purpose. This is the willow's purpose. We've talked about Paul's terrible purpose. We've talked about Paul as this character who you and I have been saying this whole time now that he is, in fact, somebody who we know things are going to happen. We see them happening. Certain characters know they're going to happen. Duke Leto knows there's a trap. He knows. Right. Doesn't know what the trap is yet, but he knows one is waiting for him. Right. So what so so should he be the willow in that case, right? Should what would we tell Paul to be the willow? I would bet the Reverend would mother would tell him to. And it's interesting to think, you know, things are going to be set in motion for Paul, and I wonder how much he's going to think back on this lesson of making sure that he knows how to be the willow. Right. Be- and that I think for one, that leads me to a really interesting quote uh, from the Reverend Mother as she looks at Jessica mm. and says, you've been training him in the way. I've seen the signs of it. I'd have done the same in your shoes and devil take the rules. But then mm-hmm. she goes on to say, now I caution you to ignore the regular order of training. His own safety requires the voice. Capital already v. Has a, Yeah. Already has a good start in it, but we both <laughs> know how much more he needs and that desperately. So yep. that I love because like she's talking about a very specific Bene Gesserit ability that he has already had. I think she's in saying that he's already had some training in that. Like it's already been alluded to in his Bene Gesserit training, but he needs to be able to master that one skill now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And two parting great moments of this chapter is when that conversation continues to where Mohayim turns to Paul and just says, goodbye, young human. I hope you make it. But if you don't, we shall yet succeed. I love that because number one, it's complimentary, but also sort of inspirational. She's suggesting we'll make it whether you make it or not, which might almost prompt him to want to make it, right? <laughs> Outside of living, uh, there there is that sort of if you, you know, they hate us because they ain't us kind of stuff. Like you want to prove to people that you are capable. And it's almost flippant for her to say, well, you, but if you don't, we'll still, we'll still succeed. It, it's, it's almost like saying, you know, we don't need you. We hope you make it though, right? It's, it's going right. to push you a little bit and, and almost maybe take a little pressure off you, even though your life hangs in the balance a bit, right? Totally. And it's interesting too, what another, just a little mysterious moment that when the Reverend Mother is leaving, yeah. Jessica notices very briefly that she is actually, has tears running down her face. Indeed. And the, it says the tears were more unnerving than any other word or sign that had passed between them this day. Right. Which, which lends us to believe two things. Number one, it doesn't appear Lady Jessica is, is, is that it's abnormal for the Lady Jessica to witness this type of emotion from Mohayim. Right. You wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that within just a few pages that the witch shadow crone woman, as so described, would be feeling something quite emotional enough to disturb Jessica. And I like right. that. I like that change. I like that sort of, we're splitting off in another direction with this character and her feeling about the situation really reveals something to Jessica. At minimum, it disturbs her greatly. Right. And I think, you know, it's it's a moment of the Reverend Mother is so dedicated to like the Bene Gesserit purpose, but in that moment, she feels her own individual emotions for Jessica and her own feelings for her kind of seep out. And it, I think it's, it's unusual for her to even have that moment. Like, I don't think she succumbs to emotions very often. Think about that too. How how weird would it be to hang out with somebody who is a truth sayer, somebody as powerful as the Reverend Mother Mohayim of the Bene Gesserit? It would be really challenging to hang out with people like this, to just spend time with them because it would unnerve you if they walked away with tears in your eyes because you would be probably thinking, I'm going to get hit by a bus on the way to work today, <laughs> right? Like maybe she knows they have, something I don't. Exactly. That type of perception is very frightening to people. As you could imagine, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, if I could come down and tell you when you're going to die and how would you want to know? Like, it's interesting to think about this conceptually when you see somebody who may have foreknowledge of something you don't almost having this, this feeling about them that would be very unnerving to you. Maybe not just the fact that she feels that way, but what's prompting her to feel that way. What does she know that we don't? What does she know more details than that she's not sharing at this time? Right. Because she fascinating. Like she can't. Yeah. Exactly. It's good shit. It's good shit, brother. Well, you ready to read your long-ass chapter four? Yeah, let's see if we can do this. You have read that Muad'Dib had no playmates his own age on Caladan. The dangers were too great. But Muad'Dib did have wonderful companion teachers. There was Gurney Halleck, the troubadour warrior. You will sing some of Gurney's songs as you read along in this book. There was Thufir Hawat, the old Mentat master of assassins, who struck fear into the heart of the Padishah Emperor. There was Duncan Idaho, the swordmaster of Ginaz, Dr. Wellington Yue, a name black in treachery but bright in knowledge, Lady Jessica, who guided her son in the Bene Gesserit way, and of course the Duke Leto, whose qualities as a father have long been overlooked. From 
A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. There's a lot to talk about just in that. For real. The dangers were too great, Matt. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, we've already established that he lives in a world of poisonous assassins <laughs> around every corner. Exactly. So uh, you don't get to go outside and play on the, the, the playground equipment with other boys and girls. No You're play. a little royal boy. <laughs> Mom, after the strange man ha- handed me a G.I. Joe, I got a really bad tummy ache. Like, <laughs> ah, contact poison on roadblock. I knew it. <laughs> Quick, get him to the get him to the hospital. <laughs> this oh, poor shit. kid, that's tough. He's so sheltered, but but with such awareness, you know, it's interesting. And then, of course, the um, the other part of this that I loved is how we learn that the Padishah Emperor fears Thufir Hawat. Yeah, mm. master of assassins. Interesting, Mintat master, Mintat master, and we're gonna meet that man right now, Matthew. Ah, uh, yes. Feeling old and aching through fear mm, He's old. He's got the old leg aches. We learn he's been serving this family for three generations. Oh, no, no, not serving them, but they've been here for three generations on, on um, Castle Caladan, right? Right, right, right. And I, I think it does imply that he has oh, been I think with you're them right. for those three generations. Yeah, I so. think you're right. You're right. Probably started out as a young soldier in the beginning with the old Duke. That's right. And the first thing we notice is that he's not thrilled with Paul's back to the door, is he? Right. He doesn't want him. I love how later on in the chapter, he's like, I, you know, I don't think there's actually any danger here right now, but you need to form that habit. Absolutely. That needs to be, that needs to be something you just do reflexively. Which is a very important moment in this book because up until this point, you know, we've heard inklings of treachery from House Harkonnen. We know that this unmet Dr. Yue has been compromised, but we're not quite sure how dangerous it is until this moment where Thufur Hawat says, don't sit with your back to the door, please. This is a problem. I can't have this. And you go, wow, in his own house, in your own house, you can't sit with your back to the door. This is a treacherous world to uh, exist in. And totally. And Paul even says, well, I heard you coming down the hall. I heard you open the door. And he says, those sounds I make could be imitated. Mm, So cool. So cool. Like, God, the intrigue in this world is just constant. It's constant. And one, one of the more interesting parts of this chapter to me is when Hawat, we get, a, we get a bit of an inkling, we get a direct line to his thinking, I should say, more aptly, in which he says, right upon that imitation discussion, Paul says he'd know the difference to which think, Hawat thinks he might have that that which mother of his is giving him the deep training, certainly. I wonder what her precious school thinks of that. Maybe that's why they sent the old proctor here to whip our dear lady Jessica into line. So this is huge. This is very revealing to me, this moment in this, in this book, because two things. Number one, let's talk about which mother. So he calls the lady Jessica a witch. Anything but, as far as we're concerned, this point in the book. So this does two things. It gives us an external perception of the Lady Jessica and the Bene Gesserit in general. And two, it makes us remember what Harkonnen said, what the Baron said, which is he's going to come to suspect Jessica. Which means Baron Harkonnen is already aware of what Thufir Hawat may think of Lady Jessica enough to where he's going to push this prejudice to make him suspect Jessica in his plan. Right. right. Utter that, brilliance. That Utter brilliance. Yeah. That it's already halfway set up for him. That he yeah. knows he can just push the situation a little further. Absolutely. And that's terrific. 
Number two, I wonder what her precious, that's very sarcastic, school thinks of that. We already talked about the Mentats, the Benny Jessera in this balanced post post Butlerian jihad, and we see that there may be n- no love lost between them. Definitely. Mentats and aren't I, fans of the Benny Jessera, maybe because they're so unquantifiable. Well, I also think within this little paragraph, <laughs> this thought of his, is the implication that he thinks she's not supposed to be teaching Paul. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that is not within her purview to start teaching him the way like that is right. He as much as he dislikes the Bene Gesserit. He's like, well, they shouldn't, she shouldn't be doing that. That's that the Bene Gesserit wouldn't approve. Right. Which means he has some knowledge of the Bene Gesserit. Additionally, I love that he knows, of course he does. He better know he's the master of assassins that she's there and he doesn't know why. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? The Master of Assassins is mad that Paul's back is to the door, but he has no clue as to why, as he calls her, the old proctor is here. Right, exactly. Intrigue, baby. Intrigue totally in the, inside their own house. Very mysterious to Ben and Jezra, which gets back to probably some of the feelings regarding them. There's, they're, they're, they're inscrutable because, because of the calculations, the way the Mentat brain works as far as we know, this far into the, into the book, as human thinking ma- machines, or as human machines, the way they think, hard to calculate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't know their moves. That's right. But they just kind of chit-chat here. You know, this is more like character building. We'll learn a bit through Fear Hawa. And he's obviously fond of the boy and the family. And, um, you know, he says, they talk about not seeing this place, and does that bring sadness and... Thufir is like, nonsense. Arrakis is just another place. Parting with friends is sadness, not places. So how it, you know, we get, we get a little bit of perception, a little bit of information on the man where he's like, places are places, but people are people. People is is what makes a place. I like that. You know, give it humanizes him. Right. That's one thing I think is really interesting about this chapter and the next, really. When, when you know, we meet Thufir Howitt, and then, we, you know, we're going to meet Gurney Halleck. You know, and we get a cool introduction to the both of them when we kind of see their their personality. But I also think it's a way of further showing Paul to us that these are his influences. The you know, he didn't have Indeed. friends, he only had his his teachers. And so learning about these teachers teaches us more about Paul and his perspective. Like this is the kind of the wisdom that he gets. And it, you know, this is his perspective is informed by these people. That's right. He starts to put into Paul's mind thoughts about Arrakis. Have you seen the Fremen? Ah, we're learning about the Fremen, this, this, uh, the local denizens, as it were, known as the Fremen. Uh, Paul considers things like just the moisture in his mouth and how we take thirst for granted. Right, right. right. And they, I mean, they describe just the environment, the storms that they can, that, that the, um, the planet has upon it that can rip up everything and just f- completely eat the flesh off your bones and etch the bones to slivers, he says. Right. And I like the way how, I, I like how Paul, uh, excuse me, how Hawat reflects on putting it in Paul's head that he's teaching him that Arrakis is an enemy, right? Right, right. I to, love to that. almost just so be prepared for it that uh, you don't take it lightly that you're going there. Yeah. Great quote. As the Duke's son, you'll never have a want for it. And he's referring to water here but you'll see the pressures of thirst all around you. Uh, and this is where we also describe the, the Fremen still suits, which is so cool and interesting to me. These suits that reclaim the body's own moisture because every single drop of moisture is so precious. They can't, you know, sweating is a luxury. You can't just let waste your sweat on Arrakis. That's right. While talking to Huat, he has these 
remembrances of talking to Mohayim. And this this is important here, right? Where uh, does he? I missed that. He, he does. Not the father. And the old woman had waved Jessica to silence, looked down at Paul. Grave this on your memory, lad. A world is supported by four things. She held up four big knuckled fingers. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, and the valor of the brave. But all of these things are nothing without a ruler who knows the art of ruling. Make that the science of your tradition, right? And I also think that her saying that is also her essentially saying that your father, Duke Leto, does not have that tradition. Like he is, he doesn't have the art of ruling quite down. It's, it's, it's explicitly stated where she says, you, Paul Atreides, descendant of king, son of a duke, must learn to rule. It's something none of your ancestors learned. That made right. me angry, Paul says, uh, because my father rules an entire planet. And she said, he's losing it. And I said, my father was getting a richer planet. And she said, he'll lose that one too. So he's recounting this tale to Hawat, right? And, yeah, and exactly. he just says, true enough. <laughs> but I love that. I love, like, what it, to, you have to grow up so quickly. And this is something UA sort of ruminates on in the next chapter. But this idea that he's growing up so quickly, usually it takes us longer than the age of 15 to realize the failings of our parents, doesn't it? Right. It seems right. like something to be, you imagine this pedestal based on what we know so far that, that Paul holds Leto up in, his father. And it's sort of being knocked down. Like, he's not doing it right, according right. to her. <laughs> Dude, one of the best quotes in this is, you know, he describes what the Reverend Mother asked him. She asked me to tell, uh, tell her what it is to rule. And he said, I said that one commands. And she said I had some unlearning to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right, it's point to persuade, not to compel, I believe, she says later. But I like this. I It's... <clears throat> I, I like seeing that leadership outside of terrible purpose, outside of Kwisatz, Haderach, Muad'Dib, and all of this mystical stuff that exists just under the surface. We have the very real discussions of leadership, not putting your back to a door, how difficult it is that you can't just play with other children. The risk is too great about how you're going to have to understand the lessons of leadership and what it means, a good ruler has to learn the world's language, Matthew. This is very important. And uh, this is something that Hawat talks to him about. Right. And he even another quote he, he brings back up from the reverend. She said a ruler must learn to persuade and not to compel. Yep. She said he must lay the best coffee hearth to attract <laughs> the finest men. Indeed. Like, I love that. It's almost like saying that you still have to attend to the details and the individual experiences of, you know, the people you're ruling. You can't lose sight of that. Right, and it, and it makes you wonder, it, it makes you wonder that quote, that the hearth quote, is essentially just to dumb it down, is basically saying, surround yourself with good people. Yeah. Make an environment where good people come to you, and then make sure you utilize those good people, because you can't do it alone, number one. And two, if Don't you have to, skimp on the coffee and donuts, gotta bring the good right. shit. That's right, and, that, and it makes you think back on the Harkonnen chapter, right? He has... He has competent men around him, but how good are they? You know, it's it's an interesting it's interesting to consider again this uh, the duality between the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like when she says too that life is a is a, the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. It's interesting that he's telling Hawat that, who is somebody who solves problems, right? Right, right. A process can't be understood by stopping it. That's the first law of the mentat. 
Understanding, understanding must, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, as you say, understanding must move with the flow of the process, must join it and flow with it. That seemed to satisfy her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Got to make Howitt proud. He's like, all right, use some Mintat shit. That, that shut her up. Right. Howitt does make an observation here where she suggests that this witch frightened him. He can see it, right? I yeah. like that. Rattled him. Mm. But all of this discussion, I think, is fascinating. I, I All of this, you know, sort of saying that the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. That is important, I think, in so many ways. Uh, constantly, we are waiting for life to happen, right? Without getting too deep here, but this is true just in the mundane. Life happens while you're sort of trying to, you know, figure out other things to do instead of just experiencing the moment, so to speak. You know, you have to experience it versus solve it. You're never going to have enough time. You're never going to have enough money, right? (laughs) It's just, you have to sort of enjoy the experience along the way because there really is no, it's the journey, not the destination, I guess, to to really simplify it. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, they start talking about the Fremen again, right? Yeah. Hawat has interesting information about them, doesn't he? He does. One of the things I love that he tells him is that there are far more Fremen than even the Imperium suspects. Like the Imperium, the, the rule of the Empire, they have a census and they, they count the people in the population of this planet, but they're, he's basically saying they're wrong. They don't realize just how many Fremen there really are because they're so off the radar. They're in such a remote place in the desert of Arrakis that there can't be a reliable count. But Hawit is like, nah, there's... There's a lot more than they realize. It may also be pointing to a larger problem under the Harkonnen rule, which is this complete ig- ignorance in, in just lack of care about them. It, it almost plays right back into a good ruler has to learn the world's language, right? It, not just that, but you have to understand that world, the rocks, the growing things, the language you don't just hear with your ears, right? So is it possible that Baron Harkonnen doesn't realize how many how many there are of the Fremen on the planet because as, as Hawat let slip, they hate him. I'm assuming he inflicted horrible things upon the ones he, in, he, he encountered, but it, that oversight is, is an interesting thing to think about. Whereas there's not only was he, did he mistreat them, but there's way more than people think. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge oversight by Harkonnen. And hopefully we don't make the same mistake when we get there. And of course, Wait. He also says that they hate the Harkonnens with a bloody passion. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Which is something that you must not breed a word of this lad. I tell you only as your father's helper. Why do you think he wants us to stay quiet? I, I was wondering about that, you know, and I, I think it is, it's just, it could be a possible advantage for uh, them. Totally. But, but they don't want to, to give that away yet. I agree. Yep. I think that's exactly why too. I think he doesn't, I think that they looked, I think they're looking over their reports of Arrakis and they're, and they're seeing something that was missed by the Harkonnens, which is this Fremen group where they're going, hmm, interesting. Let's not speak right. a word of how they feel about the Harkonnen to anyone. It's possible maybe the Harkonnen don't even know. Yeah, no, I, I, that's the feeling I get, that the <laughs> Harkonnens, for one, treated them like shit, but also mostly dismissed them, just like acted like, ah, they're just scum of the desert, ignore them. Right, absolutely. All right. So from here, uh, he basically just says, you know, next time I see you, they talk a little about Seleucus Secundus. Not much really to say there other than, um, I don't know. Isn't that, 
remind me, isn't that the planet that the Sardaukar are recruited from? That's, that, that's correct. Yep. Right. Because that you know, a brief note on that is just that the Sardaukar are the you know, the emperor's like personal warriors. Shock troops. Super, right. And they're yeah. super feared. They're they're like the most powerful force, uh, powerful military force in the universe. And he recruits them from this really inhospitable planet that really toughens and hardens up the people there. And that's why he chooses his Sardaukar from there. Right, which directly ties back to this discussion of the Fremen in Arrakis, also a difficult and harsh planet. Maybe suggesting, suggesting are the Fremen a potential untapped troop resource for Atreides, right? Since they hate the Harkonnen. I think that's the comparison he's trying to make. Right, that they, they could be possibly equally as uh, indomitable warriors. Right. And then he just basically says, you know, I'll see you on your new home world very soon. And that leads us to uh, the introduction, I believe, of Gurney Halleck, correct? Yes, indeed. An ugly lump of a man. <laughs> yeah. He likes him best, though. Paul's a fan of Gurney. Gurney has a bit of bravado to him. He sings. He he sings body tales, right? He the busts Galatian. balls, too. He, he, he messes a, with him. And he doesn't mind his balls busted. You know, we've seen a lot of reverence in this book so far, even though Paul has been a bit flippant in the face of Mohayim more probably than most. We do well, that, see that there's a friendship here. Totally. And I, and I think that's kind of what I was talking about as far as like, you start to understand Paul's personality by being introduced to some of these people. And I, yeah, I got to imagine he gets some of that chutzpah from Gurney Halleck. Like yep. he is respectful. He does, you know, have royal deference and he knows how to bow and how to, you know, treat you know people of higher station but at the same time, he's got a little bit of that like sneer at, at tradition, and you got to imagine that comes from from Gurney, who likes to sing these body tales about girls who are good for fucking. That's right, and that's that's the point. Yeah, that's the whole point of the chapter from the from the get go is learning who Paul is and how he's been shaped by the people that are his companion teachers. I believe they call them. Yeah, exactly. Right, he sings body tales, and uh, we we. You know, there's a there's a lot of I would say a lot of fluff here, which is awesome, and it it's quickly zeroes in on the discussion of mood. Right, first thing he does is he says, "I warned you never to never to, never even in play do you let a man inside your guard with death in his hand." And Paul's yeah. like, "Well, I guess I'm just not in the mood today." In mood, and Alex like, "Friendship, this fun we're having aside, stop because it has." Mood has nothing to do with it. You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle or making love or playing the balisette. It's not for fighting. Right. <laughs> and I love that moment. He's like, well, I'm sorry. And he's like, not sorry enough. Time to fight. Get your ass ready. Right. And it immediately makes him fight him. What I find interesting about this is, you know, you know, earlier, Thufir commented or at least thought about how Paul seemed afraid because of whatever the witch said to him, right? And now we're seeing that Gurney's attack is so aggressive that Paul thinks, is this Harkonnen treachery? Like, is he, yeah. trying, to, is he trying to kill me right now? Because he's really coming after me. Is this betrayal? Surely not Gurney. Right. It's, it's like, a I great moment. Yeah. Because he wants to get him off balance. He wants to force him to, to deal with that feeling. Right. And we see they come to a you know, Paul has the has the knife on him, and he has the <laughs> he has the, uh, the 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 knife on his balls. Basically, his groin, I believe it's said. Right, right. He's like, we would join each other in death. So that's, that's right. you did good, but not good enough. Right, right, absolutely. Um, one of the things I like about this is 
the discussion of, oh, I, I, I'll scar you. Like he's, he's basically being harsh. He's like, I'll scar you up, man, if you don't get it together. And he's like, no, my dad would punish you. He, and he said, no, he won't. He'll punish me if I fail to make you a first class fighter. Yeah, that's so good. In in this Dude. mood fallacy, we it's got to get out of here. What? Why are we thinking mood now? <laughs> right, we got to get rid of this thing you've suddenly developed. Yeah, it's it's Halleck, by the way, who says how soon this child must assume his manhood. You know, he's thinking about it like how sad. Right, right. That he has no time to to be a kid. That he has to assume the mantle of being a warrior and a duke's son, and kind of be ready to inherit everything. That's right. How soon he must read that form within his mind, that contract of brutal caution to enter the necessity, the necessary fact on the necessary line. Please list your next of kin. <laughs> Dude, one crazy thing about that. So is, correct me if I'm wrong here, is Halleck already anticipating a, a, a somewhat near death for the Duke? I don't know if he's anticipating it so much as he's expecting that loss is coming to the boy. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because because they're going to Arrakis and all of the political baggage that surrounds that. That's true. I mean, that's another great quote from him. But this no longer can be play. Tomorrow we go to Arrakis. Arrakis is real. The Harkonnens are real. Yeah, I think that's the general disposition of Halleck at this point. Think about it from his perspective. This guy lost his sister. I don't know if it's discussed here. I think it is. No, I'm pretty sure it is. He he um, he talks about not remembering which type of flower his sister loved and how that's like that hurts him. Yeah, that he can't remember that already. That's that's hard, man. That's 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 a real sense of loss. Was it daisies? Was it pansies? He couldn't remember, and it really bothers him. And you know, he's you know he lost his his sister on Gidi Prime to the Harkonnen, so he clearly oh. has. All the reason and, to hate them. <laughs> oh, definitely. And it even briefly mentions that he, you know, it, it talks about this ink vine scar along mm-hmm. his jawline. And uh, I think it's Paul who remembers that he got that on Getty Prime being tortured by the Harkonnens. That's right. So definitely not a fan of them. Not a fan. <laughs> um, a couple of the other things uh, before we move past this was just this idea of the how they were fighting, you know, slow on attack, fast on defense, right? They talk about that. Yeah, so that's a really cool bit of their technology, that they have these shield belts that project a shield around them, like sort of an energy field. But the way that you fight somebody with it is that if you slash at it really quickly with a sword, it bounces off of it. It, like, repels it. But if you push a sword very slowly through it, it can go through the energy beam, and you can actually get the guy wearing it. So they have to practice like fighting and parrying quickly, but also finding a way to slowly push a blade in for the attack. So it's like this weird balance of speed and like slow calculated movement. And, and this gets back, or this gets right back to deception being this big theme because it even it's even said as quoted here in shield fighting, one moves fast on defense, slow on attack. Paul said, attack has the sole purpose of tricking the opponent into a misstep, setting him up for the attack sinister. Right. So again, the, the, the slow on attack, uh, slow on attack, fast on defense is a very interesting way to think about it. The, 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 the slow attack or, or even using a fast attack as sort of a deception to set somebody up for a slow attack. It reminds me of just the whole idea of plans within plans as, as the Baron Harkonnen said, plans within plans, Pyta, this slow moving attack. That's that, that, that the Duke even knows is coming. This slow trap, it's like an anaconda just wrapping around you slowly. It, I've, it's interesting that 
so much of the book is tied back into deception as a tool, as a very powerful tool. Right. That's true. That's a really good point. It's awesome. I also do like the reflection of Gurney thinking how he himself is infected by mood right now as well, which gives him sort of this empathy for Paul, thinking about his sister, thinking about everything else that's going on, his own sadness. Right, right. It's good stuff. And I love the way this chapter closes too, where he talks about if fishes were, uh, if fishes, if wishes were fishes, we'd all cast nets. Mm-hmm. It was his mother's expression, and he always used it when he felt the blackness of tomorrow on him. Then he thought what an odd expression that was to be taking to a planet that had never known seas or fish. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a great, great line. That's a great chapter in a great, in a great look at the men around Paul as well as how Paul, as you sort of pointed out, may have taken something from them. Sort of that brazen attitude from Gurney in the face of even somebody as powerful as the witch shadow, Mother Mohayim. It's neat. Exactly. Chapter five, sir. Yes, indeed. And this will well, be where this, we end, right? Right, our final chapter for this episode. UA, Wellington, standard 10,082 to 10,191, medical doctor of the Sook School, graduated standard 10,112, married to Juana Marcus, BG, standard 10,092 to 10,186, Chiefly noted as betrayer of Duke Leto Atreides. Bibliography Appendix 7, Imperial Conditioning and Betrayal, V. <laughs> I just love that. It's like, the, he is the example of conditioning and betrayal. From the Dictionary of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan, number one fan. This, this is interesting because it brings us back to this idea of things set in motion that will be, right? Again, this future voice telling us, prepare yourself, reader. <laughs> He is nothing but a betrayer. Right. And uh, I like how a lot of the description of the man, stiff, right? Uh, um, right. And, and stick-like, thin, as it were. Somebody not doing so hot. They got that interesting diamond on their forehead. That that yeah. Souk School brand, I guess, is what it is. Absolutely. And I love that his first words to Paul are, you do look comfortable, uh, like, like basically acknowledging that I sure as fuck am not. Right. A lot of this, a lot of this, and this is only a few pages, is UA just reflecting on, oh, how the boy has filled out such a waste. You know, UA has, speaking of terrible purpose, UA has already been infected with terrible purpose by one Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And uh, that terrible purpose, we don't know what will be of it. We just know that it will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he keeps even reminding himself, you know, he says, I must not falter. What I do is done to be certain that my Wana no longer can be hurt by the Harkonnen beasts. Mm. So they, that's what they're holding over his head. That's how they've overwritten his imperial conditioning is they supposedly have his wife and are essentially torturing her or forcing her to do God knows what. And the only way he can save her is by betraying the Atreides. Indeed. They start talking about, on the more surface elements of the discussion, about the Fremen. They're talking about how polish comes from the city, wisdom from the desert. Um, he talks about how, by all accounts, UA says, they compose poems to their knives. Their women are as fierce as the men. Even Fremen children are violent and dangerous. She'll not be permitted to mingle with them. And Paul's like, what allies they would be? <laughs> he thinks to himself, right? <laughs> Again, thinking of the teachings of maybe Thufir, right? 
Exactly. Got to get some child warriors in, you know, <laughs> in your cause. Right, but it just shows maybe the limitations of UA or at least the distracted mind of UA to not think what an advantage we could have here versus the way you're thinking of it, which is a danger to me. But of course, everything's a danger to him. On your own home world, you can't sit with your back to a door, let alone when you're on a rack is <laughs> playing with children that are of Fremen stock. And I think it still goes on, you know, I think Thufir is the, the one to kind of have a different perspective that Paul notices, but... I think UA's perspective on the Fremen is kind of the normal perspective. I like agree. most yeah. most people think of the Fremen as yeah, they're like really weird, violent, removed people, and you kind of just don't want to mess with them. Don't don't even think about them. Blue eyes. We're, we we you know not quite sure if it's a mutation, but uh, it's likely has to do with the saturation of blood from the spice. Yeah. Right. Which like which lends exactly. Yeah. But um. UA basically just says, you know, Arrakis has many costly perils, and he's just cautioning him. Your father will be here soon. Before I go, I have a gift for you. And this is when he hands him a gift. And I like this moment where Paul looks, UA notes how the boy didn't reach for it and thinks how cautious he is. Because what if it's poison? What if you're too close? What if you have a knife? (laughs) Now, dude, one thing. Okay, so I find this book really interesting, the way it's described, and it's cool. But I also have a lot of trouble picturing it. The technology. It, is, it, it almost feels like this little mini thing. You push a button and it transforms into a big thing. Right. I think so. Or like that it can, um, that it has a magnifier that like kind of springs up so that you can look at it. But I am like, I, dude, it, I know it's like the smallest thing ever, but I'm like, I wonder if they'll portray this in the movie and fucking how. Like, no, how it'll be a fucking this? iPad in the movie. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> But yeah, oh, I, it's that that part of it. I think is just science fiction kind of nonsense, right? It's just like <laughs> <laughs> the way he, the way it's described is the book is held closed by strange uh, by the charge which forces against spring locked covers press the edge and thus in the pages you select like repel each other and the book opens. It's so small, but it has eighteen hundred pages. Press the edge thus so, and the charge moves ahead one page at a time as you read. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, sure. <laughs> I'll take it. Whatever. I love how UA reflects on giving him. Uh, I salve my own conscience. I give him the the uh, the surcease of religion before betraying him, or something like that. Right, right. And dude, that next line. Thus, may I say to myself that he has gone where I cannot go. Mm-hmm. That shit is so good. Like he's basically accepting damnation. He's like, it's like this small token of well, maybe you can have some sort of you know religious saving, uh, Paul. But that's not going to be for me because I'm a betrayer. That's right. And, and I, I love this. It's, it's so interesting to get the perspective. We, this, this whole, what I find so fascinating about this whole book is we've been talking about deception so far. And now we're getting to a point where someone's actively attempting to deceive, if not deceive, then at least obscure and obfuscate their own motivations and thoughts from the boy Paul. Right. He's fortunate that Paul is still quite young because he may have been pegged right here. It's true. That's true. Right. Like he, because he is acting so strange. And, you know, uh, it, Paul even talks about, well, if this book is so valuable, and he's like, oh, no, indulge an old man's whim. It was given to me when I was very young. Like, Paul finds it odd, mm, this gift. Indeed. He does. He does. Uh, even to the point where it's their own little secret. Yeah, exactly. He's like, don't tell anybody that I've given this to you. That's right. Think you of the fact, uh, I like I like this moment where he's like, read, read it aloud. So he, he opens this random page. That says, think of you the fact that a deaf person cannot hear, then what deafness may we not all possess? 
What sense do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world all around us? What is there around us we cannot... Stop it! Yui barks, right? Because that's Juana's favorite passage. How ironic. Right. What perversity caused the book to open at my Juana's favorite passage? Mm. He's been trying so hard to kind of keep his emotions subdued and he just can't help it there. Right, right. Yeah, it's... um, Paul notes the notches, so he just kind of felt that that was bookmarked there. That's the right. that's the explanation, but that that is such an interesting thing. It's it's the idea of not being able to conceive that which you can't conceive. Like you can't describe sound to somebody without relating it to other sounds, right? True. Yeah. Unless they can hear them for themselves, it's very difficult. What senses right. do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world all around us? Again, this gets back into what what appears to be existing at the front of these books: these uh, omniscience about future things and. In, in these characters not realizing that things are, in fact, in, in motion. And what sense offers us to that? What, what was making Mohayim tear? What do they know that we don't know? And can we even conceive of that which we don't know? I love that. Yeah, exactly. Like how much what, you don't have the sense to perceive other things that are already happening and could be acting upon you. You just don't know. That's right. Anyway, we, Paul goes on to thank UA for the gift. And he's like, is there something I can offer in favor of you? Which catches Yui by surprise. I need nothing, he says, and thinks, why do I stand here torturing myself and torturing this poor lad, though he does not know it? Damn those Harkonnen beasts. What did they choose me? Why they choose me for, for their abomination? You know, thinking it's extra, it's driven home extra when he thinks about this boy being kind to him. Right. Right, that he's like, I'm such, I've been doing such an awful thing to him, and I, I just have to carry forward with it. Absolutely. What do you think about Yue? I feel terrible for Yue. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, brutal, right? That, you know, the book is so mean to him. Well, not really actually mean to him, but like, y- you see that in the future, he is regarded so horribly. Like, he's just the, the, the disgusting betrayer who, you know, tried to ruin the house uh, Atreides, and but in truth, he is being as, you know, he's basically got a gun to his head or to his sure. lover's head. Sure. And he sure. has no choice in this and he's tortured by it. Yeah. Well, or he has a choice, but he, he makes the choice. I think, you know, a lot of people may make, right. And, and, and this is, this is interesting. It's, it's almost like his own version of putting his hand in the box. He's pulling it out, right? Yeah. True. It's, I don't know. I like, I like the, like he's going on the pure, emotional here he's going i don't mind the downfall of house atreides if i can save wana right right which is a tall order to ask anybody you know it's but it does it 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 made it made me thinking about this a little bit more today made me reflect back on the test the sifting of of people the sifting of them as if they're sand and seeing what pops up and and do we catch ua in this i just find it fascinating that the souk school has all this renowned about it in Baron Harkonnen of all people figured out a way to compromise this man which again one of the things I love about the section that we read is just this idea that the Harkonnen are not dumb they might be cruel they might be bad but they are clever and intelligent and they are patient right right proper villains proper villains yeah no totally a calculated patience they have awesome well that was a lot of fun let's talk about what we're going to read next time Yes, sir. Well, if you guys are following along, we just finished on page 65. Uh, and next time, we're going to be starting on page 66. Which is chapter to, 6. Yeah, chapter 6. That starts on page 66. And then we'll be reading all the way to 132. 
Okay, so let's get that. Let's in case they have a different version of the book, we'll we'll offer that a little bit more. So, chapter six starts like this: How do we approach the study of Muad'Dib's father, a man of surpassing warmth and in, in surprising coldness? So that's where we're starting next week. And then the last one we're reading, you said what page? I'm sorry, one thirty-two. That yeah, that the ends on page one thirty-two, but that the last chapter begins on page one twenty-five. Which said, which would be, which we'll call chapter eleven, which is the passage. It is said that the Duke Leto blinded himself to the perils of Arrakis. That's all I want to say because I don't want to spoil it. But um, so yeah, you're going to read yeah. from how do we approach the study of Muad'Dib's father? To it is said that the Duke Leto blinded himself to the perils of Arrakis, chapter six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Indeed, awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Matthew. It's been great to dive into this. I'm happy with this discussion so far. But thank you guys very much. Hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys have a great week, and thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.